Hello and welcome to a special episode of Eerie Essex being recorded in Colchester Castle in the prisons. In the dungeon. So we're here today with Ben Pates and Charlotte Evans. Uh, We're going to be talking about the latest exhibition, Wicked Spirits. So Charlotte, we're really interested in getting your opinion as somebody who's on work experience here. What do you think about how the exhibition has reframed what happened to these women and in some cases men, from away from the Matthew Hopkins era. Do you think it's a it's a good thing to change that for this day and age? Yeah, definitely, because previously I think it's been much more, like especially from the male perspective, and hasn't actually taken into account the women's stories and how quite often they are really unfairly accused. I think with the exhibition here, they really focused on individual women's stories and they even have a list of all the names of the accused so you really do get to understand how in some cases horrific it was for the women. Mm. And do you think that's relevant to anything that's happening today? Is that something that you can see reflected in things going on around you or? I think yeah I think we've definitely been getting better with in terms of gender equality and things like that however there still is a long way to go, I think changing the narrative on historical events helps understand how sexism is inbuilt completely in our society and how it's been going on for so, so many years. And it's really good to show progress of how it's changing and how the narrative is changing. That's great. So we just had a brief tour through the exhibition. What did, what was your favourite object in there? Do you, do you remember any of them particularly or is it Probably my favourite is the dried cat. Yes, the dried cat. Um, when we first started setting up this interview with Ben, I mentioned to him that I had a particular fear of that particular <laughs> dried cat, <laughs> um, as it was in an exhibition a few years ago called Hidden Treasures. Um, and when I worked here, I used to occasionally wander around a corner and stumble upon it and forget it was there and then scare myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is there a, a particular person in the exhibition or a particular story that is... Um, you found touched you more? Um, I found the one, fortunately I can't remember the name of the man in Silverio mm. and his story because I think it is really interesting that actually it did happen to men as well although mm. it was a lot more rare. For me personally before I came and looked at the exhibition I believed it was exclusively women so that's something that I think I learn and I found really interesting. Yeah, that's a really good observation because I think mm. that's the same with things, other kinds of misogyny. You always think it's about women, but also how it affects men as well. Yeah, definitely. Is there something I could add on that? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, so one of the things you often see with accusations against men in this period is that it's often about consorting with witches. Oh. So very rarely do you mm. get a man accused of witchcraft, although as mm. you say, there are some, like the case in Sybil Headingham. Um, he doesn't have a name. But, um, yeah, a lot of the time when you look through the cases in history, when it comes to, to the men who were accused, it was because they were consorting with witches, which says a lot about how they ended up getting caught up in these things, as opposed to the women who right. ended up getting caught up in these um, accusations. Yeah, I was thinking there was one, um, I can't remember which one it was, it was a particular one, and it was because maybe they were having an affair, mm-hmm. yeah. and there was jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. How much did, before you came to uh, work here, how much did you know about the witch trials? How much is it talked about in schools these days? Um, we had, we covered Macbeth uh, English. So one of the parts of that was 
King James first and his book on demonology. Mm. And that was kind of brought up there. And then during history, we covered the Elizabethans, in which we did touch very slightly on witchcraft, although not that much. So it isn't brought up too much on schools. It's more linking to other areas, so such as Macbeth witchcraft is a massive theme. And it was more explored how Shakespeare presented the witches and how it compared with society and the fact that Shakespeare wanted patronage from King James I, so he included witches because King James I had a specific interest in witches. I think that's that fantastic. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Charlotte. You did really, really well. Yeah, no, that was really interesting. You've got a future in media relations. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to talk to Ben now about some more in-depth questions about the exhibition. Ben, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the castle? Yeah, so I'm one of the collections and learning curators here at Colchester Museums. Uh, I have responsibility for, I like to think of it as telling the stories using the objects. So um, we work on exhibitions, we work on events, and we kind of, as curators, have an understanding of what our collections are and the sorts of objects we have. And we can use that knowledge to select the appropriate things to to use in exhibitions and write the text and all that. Uh, My background is in Roman archaeology, um, so archaeology specifically. So coming into this exhibition was quite new for me. It's not a period of history I'm particularly familiar with, but I'm very passionate about telling the stories of underrepresented people throughout history. So that's why um, I was kind of put in charge of this particular exhibition. We might ask a couple of questions that cover what you talked about upstairs, but just in case I didn't get everything... You don't mind repeating it. If... Okay, so how did the project come about? So it began with the idea of a single case. We wanted to loan um, a copy of a book that we knew was at the University of Essex. That is the Malleus Maleficarum, which is quite an important book in the history of the witch trials. So we wanted to start with that and just look at the idea of bringing the stories of the witch trials out of the prisons, which is where we're sat currently and where the stories originally were being told, into the main galleries and into the permanent gallery space. Um, We have a temporary display case that we use for those sorts of things, so it's just going to be a simple display in that case. Um, Then at the end of 2021, we ended up meeting with the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic from Cornwall and the Museum of British Folklore, and we showed them the space that we had, we gave them a bit of a walk around, talked about some of the ideas we had about bringing these stories into into the open. And they had some ideas of their own, they had some object suggestions of their own that they had in their collections, and it just grew and grew. And we we started off by adding a couple of extra cases. Then we decided to use the entire Northwest corner of the castle for these displays. We talked about having art installations, kind of other things to add to these typical traditional museum displays. And it ended up being the thing that it is today. I will say, usually our exhibitions, we spend several years planning Mm. um whereas this one was sort of turned around in seven months so um it was a big opportunity for us to kind of get this done in a short period of time the main reason is we also we tend to alternate big exhibitions between the towns so we're here in colchester but we're also partnered with ipswich museums and this year is their big exhibition year so we weren't meant to do a big exhibition this year but because of this opportunity with those other museums we thought well of course we have to we have to do that so that's where we ended up with what we have today they are lovely in the Witchcraft Museum. I was going to ask, how did they become involved in the first place? So our director, Frank Hargraves, mm. is, um, he's part of the, he's one of the trustees of the Museum of British Folklore. And he has contacts then with, with those people, but also um, Simon Coston um, and Melanie Robinson, who founded the Museum of British Folklore. Also, uh, so Simon is the director of 
the Museum of Witchcraft. Um, and Melanie is a consultant uh, curator for, for there as well. So a lot of crossed things between these organisations. Yeah, they, they Frank approached them and um, they were quite interested to see what we could do and how we could work together. They have worked with museums before. They did the they helped with the Ashmolean exhibition a few years ago. Um, they've worked, they, they do tend to go out a lot to different places and museums and art galleries and things to do things, mainly because, I, I'm as guilty admitting this, I have not been to the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in a long It's quite far away to get to. and quite difficult will, to get to. I will go. I wanted to go. It it's is just, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I only managed to go because I went to uni with a friend who lived around the corner. Uh, <laughs> it is good and there's no what I find with these sort of like um, places there's no gatekeeping everybody mm. wants to help each other yeah. it's a really lovely it's community. one of the nicest things we've found coming into doing this type of podcast yeah no one's like you're doing what it's like you're doing what <laughs> how can we help it's lovely yeah. That's good. Um, but yeah, but so, yeah, so I've never been. But from my understanding of the place is that most of their displays are fairly static, which is why they go out to other places and do their temporary exhibition type work in other places, which is why we're very lucky that they've decided to work with us this year. Actually, one of the things I wanted to say was that you said it took seven months to put this exhibition together. And I think in some ways that's actually sort of made it feel really fresh. Mm. Like it feels, it feels like, not an idea off the top of somebody's head, but it feels like it's a fresh thought. Like mm, it's, yeah. it, it's a different way of looking at it and maybe something that's been ruminated on for a couple of years. Yeah. I think the fact that it it's kind of an exhibition that, that grew from an idea has allowed that to happen. Rather than saying, we're going to do this big exhibition on the mm. Witch Child and then having to condense it and then having to play around with things. Because we started small, and we've actually said, well, what if we add this bit? What if we add this bit? That's kind of helped keep it contained. Um, so I think that's definitely how it's ended up feeling like that. Why do you think it's important to reframe the narrative away from Hopkins and towards the women involved at this time? In a nutshell, Hopkins was an abuser and doesn't deserve any of our attention at all. So he does have a mention in the prisons area in the castle, as I mentioned, and that was the only place where we spoke about the witch trials. But what we realised is that what we need to do is, is tell the stories of the victims. They're the people who's, who have been lost throughout history. Their names have been forgotten. Everyone, if you mention the Whitrolls, they'll say Matthew Hopkins, maybe John Stern and a few other people. But it's Agnes Waterhouse, Ursula Kemp, um, Joan Prentice, all those people who suffered and died as a result of these laws that aren't remembered. And we wanted to bring those names out to the forefront and, and tell their stories, which aren't told anywhere. So, on Hopkins, do you think he actually believed he was catching witches, or do you think he was just in it for the money? Because a lot of people talk about how he bought this hotel in, uh, was it Manningtree? It was in Manningtree, though. We actually did, I think there was one of the the stories about him haunting that particular hotel (laughs) as well. Yeah, I mean, there's bound, I think people talk about him haunting here as well, because obviously he came here to Colchester's Castle, he used not these specific cells, but he used the cells... Um, here in the castle as a way to detain his suspects. But I I think at the time, plenty of people did believe, did believe that witches were real and they are out to get you. And that's what led to that increase in fear and yeah. persecution. As to Hopkins, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. I think he might have believed, but I think he also was definitely trying to make money. Um, and in fact, that was one one proud moment for the history of Colchester. The reason he kind of stopped here was because the people of Colchester chased him out because they realised he was trying to extort them, and so that's why he stopped. He stopped working here because right. 
yeah, the people of Colchester, <laughs> they've always, the people of Colchester have always recognised We're good at things. finding a swindler. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Hopkins, yeah, was eventually chased out of the town. And the thing is, he operated across such a wide area, mm. the whole of East Anglia and, and Essex. And he had plenty of opportunity to, to find, find who he wanted to find. Yeah. Really. But one thing that makes me edge more towards him believing and in it for the money was he stayed away from Canoodon. Ah, The yes. village which kind of feared to tread. Yes. Because surely that would have been right for the picking. Mm. And yeah. I think he genuinely did believe but stayed away from the real deal mm-hmm. because he was afraid of them. He was more intent on going after these poor, innocent... Mm. Oh, yeah. Can't yeah, the man is... The worst. Yeah. Yeah. We have to watch our language because Bethan's children sometimes listen. Not Anthony Hopkins. No. In our episode we did on witches, we had a right rant about Matthew Hopkins. And another podcast spoke about it and said, yeah, they really hate Anthony Hopkins. No, we really don't. That's not a feud we wanted to start. Very different person. Very different person. Yeah. Actually, one of the things, going back to what we were talking about before, one of the things um, you were speaking about outside when we got to the case with the three three witches from Shakespeare in, mm. about the kind of climate in the population at the time, there'd been civil war, been mm. an ice age snap. I found that really interesting then that the, the witches in popular cultures were gaining more prominence. It kind of reminded me of uh, Satanic Panic in the 1980s. Mm. Yeah how it kind of it started off in popular culture and then everybody sort of grew to fear mm. fear it but it was oh it's people seeing people's and then you, fear and using it you, yeah. you had the nixon's war on drugs yeah exactly mm. it was the it was the um climate at the time in the 80s that we had a re- recession didn't mm-hmm. we and it was sort of an answer yeah. to the, the free love and hippie before it's like yeah. none of that evil <laughs> Yeah, it does. It, these these do come about at times of of crisis, and mm. especially when societies are being split and torn by different views and beliefs. Um, dare I say, it's happening again? Yeah, I was and just thinking that. That's why I think we we thought this was a very timely mm. exhibition to highlight those the ways in which people can revert to the most debase kind of accusations yeah. and things with absolutely no evidence for it. When you're already in a, a state of, of fear and l- looking out for, for the enemy, this is the thing. I think yeah. the way society, um, not just not just here, kind of across the world, you see these patterns of society being polarised by different views. And again, this is something that happens throughout history. It's not new, but it's just seeing it very clearly again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say about stuff coming out in public culture. Again, I don't know if you've seen lots of witch stuff in TV and mm-hmm. film and we, stuff at the moment. It's almost like people know <laughs> people know it's happening and they're like, oh, just remember, remember what happened before. <laughs> but yeah, I think it is, it's interesting how intrinsically kind of societal views and culture, mm-hmm. popular culture do. It's, it's a two-way process. They feed into these fears in society, but then society then causes the surge in new media and new views. There, are, there were the TikTok witches who tried to curse Donald Trump or yeah. the moon at some point, I think, as well. Tried to curse the moon? Yeah, there was, it was weird. It was a weird time. It was during the election period. Yeah. But it was also during the, I think it was the Second World War, that the British government got witches to come to somewhere in the southwest, I think, to practice their rituals to kind of help defeat Hitler and protect Britain from oh. invasion. So like I, I think I mentioned... A, mentioned before 
maybe not what we've been recording, but um, there's definitely kind of, it's, it's surprising how recent in history mm. these things mm. happen. And the last witchcraft act, the 1735 act, wasn't repealed until the 1950s, mm. replaced by another act, the, the Fraudulent Mediums Act. So it's still kind of in the in the legal system to yeah. look out for witches, whether they're now classed as mediums or not. I know they they are different people, but within the law and within some people's perceptions, they're all lumped together as people on the fringes of society who have powers that they can't explain, mm. um, at least they're perceived as that. And so that's why they're targeted by others. That's actually a question I was going to ask later, but I might ask it now. In planning for this exhibition, did you consult or did you talk to current practising witches? Um, so we consulted a wide range of different people. We had Simon, so Simon Costin, director of the Museum of Witchcraft, is he's described himself as a practicing. He has magical practice, mm-hmm. um, and he and Melanie, um, Melanie isn't, but they, they were both heavily involved in the interpretation. Um, so myself and my colleague Sophie, um, who's the other curator here in the museums. We wrote all the text, so we wrote it ourselves, mm. having consulted, but then we ran that by a variety of different people. Right. Um, so Simon um, and Melanie had, had a look at it. We sent the text to Professor Alison Rowlands at the University of Essex. We've also sent the text to John Warland, who um, is a local advocate and um, works a lot with pagan, Wiccan, modern witches in kind of the local area and has done a lot of work to raise awareness and commemorate those who have lost their lives um, through the witch trials, so we yeah we wanted a, a range of of different people and different experiences and voices to to go through this, and even beyond that, when we um, initially so we have a thing just to go into a bit of museum background in case that's interesting to listeners. Yeah, definitely. Every museum will do this in a different way, but what we do here at Colchester Museums is when we have an exhibition, someone or maybe two people will write the text, and then we have a thing called text group. And text group is where we get people from different areas of the museum service together. Again, ideally with different beliefs, different views, different opinions, different perspectives to come together and and make sure that the text is firstly accessible so that I think our target is that an eight-year-old would be able to read it fairly easily. Um, Sometimes we have to include words that eight-year-olds might not recognise, but if we do, that means we then contextualise it. We say, so one, one example being linked to this, apotropaic. Some people may have never heard of apotropaic before. Basically, it means magical protection. So you kind of explain some of those words you want to use. So we go through this text group, and that text group does have people of different religions, different kind of sexualities, genders, all sorts of different things. Um, obviously, we can't be fully representative because that group is usually six people. But we try as best as we can to make sure that our people putting the input into these things is, is diverse, mainly so that we can catch anything that might be triggering or anything that might be kind of written in the wrong way or worded in the wrong way that could be offensive. But also just to make sure that we have that input from different people. We want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to contribute to this in some way. And I, by no means, am an expert in in this field. And so I want other people to say, actually, you've written this. That's completely wrong. What are you talking about? So um, even if I was talking about the Romans, which is my area of (laughs) of expertise, if you want to call it that, I'd still want other people to, to pull me up on things if I get it wrong. So... Um, yeah, so we've we've consulted a lot of different people. I think that's a really good way of doing it. It sounds like fantastic practice. Mm. So many people confessed to witchcraft, did so through torture. And I understand that when we looked, well, when we did our episode on it, a lot of these people actually thought they had practiced witchcraft, whether they had knowingly done it or not. Mm-hmm. But what did the actual practice of witchcraft at that time look like? So the vast majority of people who were practicing would have been healers and um 
So you can kind of look at magical practice in a couple of different ways. One is one is healing. One is kind of traditional medicine, almost we would class it as nowadays. So that's using herbs and plants and things to cure, to treat people. Um, this is at a time where science and, and medicine there's there's a fine line between what's what we would consider as magic and what's considered as science. And even to the point where religion sort of comes into this, where prayer is prescribed as a way of, of healing people. And that's something that you could almost look at as kind of magical practice, saying words to cause and effect, mm-hmm. like, which is what magical practice is all about. Very similar pants. So there's very blurred lines at this time, which is why many people who were healers and, and midwives and things actually weren't, didn't kind of necessarily get accused of this because they were practicing these things that were so embedded already within medicine and science, um, they could sort of get away with it. But the people, there were other people who were kind of in positions of power. So we talked about the John Dee features in the exhibition. John Dee was in a position of power. He was a an alchemist, an astrologer. And what I kind of see when we look at these people is they're usually fairly well-off men uh, in positions of power. And so they they were allowed to practice magic because they, they already had that position within society. John Dee was an interesting case where he lost that power because James I came along, who was so against magical practice and witchcraft that it was a sort of unfortunate timing, really, that John Dee continued into this new reign where magic and witchcraft were so completely abolished and kind of seen as this horrific, scary thing. One of the things I was going to talk about as well is that before John Dee, obviously, for the, uh, the dissolution of the monasteries, the church actually held on to most of the magical texts that were being produced. And the priests and the monks who were scribing were probably the ones doing most of the magical practice in that time. And then you get Francis uh, Young, who's a historian, um, wrote about the democratisation of magic, which then leads to John Dee. And, but the church was still using magic in some ways because we, you do find these, these sort of uh, carvings like the witch traps and the demon mm-hmm. traps all over churches still. And there's yeah. even evidence of well, um, like curses. The, to be the first thing that mm. is buried, that's, mm. that's not in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, but it's... There's uh, evidence of, in some churches of actual people writing in Latin or uh, write, using uh, spells out of Latin books, uh, carving curses into the church hall to like amp up their effect. And there was stories about priests actually taking money from the, their parishioners to then go and do this in like in the in the back room yeah. somewhere. It's such a different t- style of magic from the what these were these people were being accused of. It's mm. like the difference between writing and reading in Latin and uh, like with the English the Latin mm. and the English Bible that you have on display out there. But you you see that still today. Mm. You still see people in positions of power dictating what is right and what is wrong. Yet they are the first people to do those things themselves. They just happen to have the money and the authority to make that go away. If if they get caught, which they usually don't, because they get they get it kind of put to one side before oh, they yeah. even yeah before they even get caught. Um, but you you see that there, you see that with anyone in a position of power was allowed to do it because you just you just play fine, and you see that with a lot of aspects, not just with witch trials. You see that with a lot of, of criminal activity throughout the mm. history. So I've I've done some research into kind of other areas as well, out of out of interest, and you see that with kind of um, punishment of sexuality as well throughout history, where under the Buggery Act it was illegal to be kind of have same sex relationships as well as lots of other sexual acts. But the vast majority of the time, people weren't punished, they were fined. And a fine is basically a punishment for the poor because 
the rich can afford to just say, fine, I'll give you money, don't don't bother me anymore. But the poor will be the ones that suffer because they yeah. can't. A little bit like lockdown parties. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes around again, doesn't it? Yeah, um, money buys you freedom. What is your favourite object in this exhibition? I think it's still the original object that was meant to be the focus of the exhibition. It's the Malleus Maleficarum. Yeah. Simply because it's it's such a pivotal object and such it shows such a turning point in this. And we know people who were believed to be witches were executed and punished, etc., before these laws came into effect. Usually under heresy, so they were seen as religious opposition, um, which is why they were burned, and then why the witches under the later acts were hung instead. That's the distinction, because they were kind of punished as through acts of harm and, and murder, in a sense. But that book is such an important part of, of the history of these trials and led to so many other books of similar sorts being produced and spread across the world. It wasn't the Malleus specifically, but it was its descendants and the Matthew Hopkins book that would have been inspired by, by previous generations of books like this that led to Salem, what mm. happened in Salem, all the way across the Atlantic. It's, it's through this idea of mass printing that you have this huge boom in ideas being shared and transmitted, which can be a wonderful thing. The idea yeah. of ideas being shared across the world sounds wonderful, and it can be. But also, if you're sharing the wrong ideas, that can be equally. If, if you have an audience who's not trained to critically assess the sources they're looking at, or something we have with social media nowadays. I was going to yes. say, from Mark's <laughs> seller to the internet, anyone it's wonderful. Can, anyone can put anything out there. But unless you know how to critically assess the source, then people will believe believe things. Mm-hmm. And the way the education system works, then to a degree now, sometimes people aren't taught that that what you kind of read isn't always the truth. Mm-hmm. And people have reasons for writing what they do. And that isn't always they're not always good reasons why yeah. they why they do that. And the final question is have you ever seen a ghost yourself? <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't seen so I've worked here in Colchester Castle for about seven years now. Um, I have done many after-hours events. I have spent a lot of time here um, at, when it's dark. You hear a lot of noises, which is fairly standard for an old building. The one instance that sticks in my memory, though, is there were... It was myself and one other person were in the building. This was a couple of years ago now, I think before the pandemic, probably. We were both upstairs, um, tidying away, locking up. And as you will have seen, you both, when you came in here, there's a sensor up there (laughs) that triggers when um, anyone walks in and it sets off um, a sound, interactive thing in the prison cells and um, shadows and things like that. As I said, we were both upstairs. The sensor, as far as I was aware, was into the room and it went off and we could hear it the sound coming up it's quite distinctive well recognized especially it's... someone who's been here for a long time the voice and narrative that you hear it's not sometimes people will say oh, i hear voices but it's probably just people outside mm-hmm. in the street mm-hmm. this is quite a distinctive voice now that voice obviously is not a ghost it's the recording but who or what could have triggered that monitor i have no idea it would need to be something quite substantial wouldn't it not just like a cob mm-hmm. or yeah, and we do, I think we because of that, we do try and make sure there are no cobwebs or anything up there because it will trigger all the time. It gets quite annoying if it keeps going off, which is why right now it's turned around so they're just in go off. <laughs> but it is, it's, it's yeah, it, it takes quite a bit and quite a sizable kind of disturbance in the room to, mm. to make it trigger. And yeah, and it's not, 
the only time the person I was with said, oh, yeah, it happens all the time when you were alone. I actually, so when I, I used to work mostly on the upper floor galleries when I did my patrolling here. And I used to listen for, because it was several interactive displays that would go off. So I used them to figure out where people were coming up to in the castle. Yeah. And then I could kind of like stand in the right place. But I... I actually used to sit at the top of those stairs. That was my favourite place to sit when it was quiet. And I did used to hear it going off all the time, but I didn't always come down and see if anybody was in here. Mm. So I don't know. It could have been going off by itself. It might not have been. But I actually did have my scariest moment in this room. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoovering in here after lockdown and I backed up towards the door over there. And then I just saw a little bit of rubbish on the ground and I went forward to go get it and my belt loop had somehow become completely twisted into the door handle oh. and it honestly felt like somebody had like grabbed me like that oh, yeah. <laughs> I did scream a bit yeah you would yeah but yeah so these because this is the thing these prison cells are a later addition they're not the the original cells from kind of back in the witch trials they're still they're, they were still functional cells because this was a prison up until the kind of early 1800s I think maybe the mid 1800s and the castle has been a prison for most of its history. That was mm. what it was, or a jail. So that's another thing. I only recently understood the difference between prison and jail, and that's a distinction that's important for this. So, I don't know that. Yeah, so a jail is somewhere where someone is kept before they are sentenced. Right. So, you, so the castle was used as a place to detain people while they were awaiting sentencing. And a prison is where you go as a punishment. Right. So you're sent to a prison if you're being punished. Pre and post sentence. Yeah. Okay. So although sometimes people would come back to the jail temporarily after they've been sentenced for various reasons, predominantly it was you were here pre-sentencing. But also with Colchester, the castle, because the the jail here was so awful and the conditions were so bad, many people died before they were even mm. sentenced and they were kept here. And even the famous case of the, the North East Essex witch trials that we know of is the Manningtree witch trials. They were kept here for a very long time. And it's surprising that not all of them died while they were waiting yeah. their sentencing, to be honest, because there are a lot of them in here and the conditions were awful. Mm. And the other thing is you didn't, the way the prison of the, the jail worked at the time is that you wouldn't get fed unless someone else could provide those those um, provisions for you unless you paid for that I service know. so yeah. didn't some people end up staying longer because they couldn't afford to pay the off. fee yeah off. they couldn't pay the fee yeah. off. even if they were innocent it's, they had to stay until they could pay it off it's a vicious cycle you kind of get get caught in that and that's why why many people died and you had this other this other space which is in we think is in the lucas vault which is another area of the castle um called the little ease which was basically yeah. a hole in the ground um, with a ladder. Yes, an oubliette. So you, you kind of, oubliette is French for kind of forgotten. So you put someone down there and they're forgotten about and they're kind of left there as a punishment. And we know of people, so James Parnell is a, is a good example, a young um, Quaker who was put in there. And because he'd been so weakened by being left in this kind of space, eventually he, when he was trying to get out of this prison, they were allowed to get out every so often. When he was trying to get out, he fell and um, broke various bones and ended up dying as a result of this being such a weakened yes. state. Um, so horrific, horrific. And obviously designed to cause torment yes. and suffering. It's not just these were cells and people, it just ended up being a bit grotty. They uh, they were designed to be punishing. Wow, I think that, that wraps um, it up. Yeah, yeah. It wraps it up. Well, thank you so much, Ben. It's been a real delight talking to you and we really enjoyed the exhibition. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> thank so you. Well. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, highly recommended. What 
days are you open? And what so, the yeah, Colchester Castle is open every day of the week, apart from, I think, Christmas Day. The exhibition's on until the 6th of January. Mm-hmm. The I'm not sure of the entrance prices, but please look at our website and find out. <laughs> I don't really deal with prices. I don't really know. But um, but if you are a resident of Colchester, you can um, get an annual men- membership where you pay for one ticket and you can come in as many times within a year. So it's very worthwhile doing that if you want to. We can put a link in the show notes. We will put a link yeah. in the show notes. And the exhibition is called Wicked Spirits. Mm-hmm. And come and def- see it. Yeah, definitely come and see it. <laughs> Hi all, just Elsa back again. We've been a bit remiss in thanking our Patreon donors over the last couple of episodes. So let me just do this here. Our newest donors are Annie Caradillo, Joe Hickey Hall, Holly Allred, Adam Thomas, Tanner Johnson, and Richard Stokes. Thank you everyone. Sorry, that was Casper. Thank you everyone for donating. We're so thankful for all of your donations. They really do help us keep the lights on here at Eerie Essex. 